0: Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. And Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. This is part two of The Golden Sparrow, a musical escape room. We'll be rejoining the story of a fictional retelling of a musical escape room I implemented in Fort Collins, and we'll dive right in. Part 2. The office was breathtaking, and in its day would have effectively communicated the wealth and influence of which Mr. Franklin had been possessed. Everything in there was a legitimate antique that had been delicately mummified in the same dust that covered the first floor. To my left was a series of small windows that looked onto the main entrance. Straight ahead were likewise two more windows that looked to the glowing afternoon in the west. Directly opposite the door was a regal-looking desk that betrayed the skill of a master woodworker from another age. To the immediate right of the door as we entered was a coat stand with an old gray frock coat that had slumbered there for many decades. Somehow, it was worn, but not worn out. Along the right ran an interior wall, in the middle of which was a large wardrobe that faced the windows to the street outside. In the back left, in the corner between the windows, was one of those original bell-type phones with a crank on the side. This place was a museum of Fort Collins history. As I sat a bit awed by the office, Janine was all business. She immediately headed to the desk and began to go through drawers for the papers that she came to recover. She meticulously went through each drawer in the desk and systematically placed the contents of each on top of the desk. As she did, she was flipping through them, looking for whatever it is she was looking for. I walked around the room and drank in the wall decorations clockwise from where I entered. The first framed piece was an antique photo of an all-girls zither band, 12 long-deceased young women gazed out solemnly from what couldn't have been as grave an enterprise as their faces suggested. I had heard of the musical instrument, but could not recall having ever seen one, either in a photograph or in person. No doubt the Olympian heights of virtuosity belong to every musical instrument, but not all Mount Olympuses are equally divine. Lots of junk here, but I'm not finding what I needed. I turned to look at Janine, who was exuding an air of annoyance. They are not here. What? The other keys. Other keys, I asked? For the rest of the offices and the two retail spaces downstairs. There was supposed to be an envelope in the top drawer that had the keys to the other rooms. But it is not here. Perhaps this is the wrong office, I offered. No, they said it was in Franklin's office on the second floor overlooking the street. She was flustered, but quickly composed herself. Well, we're here. I'm going to take a look around the rest of the building. She headed out of the room, and I decided to follow her in the event that the doors might open, and that if they did, she might be glad to have another soul alongside. We tried all the second floor doors, locked. We went to the third and fourth floors, which were laid out precisely the same as the second floor where Franklin's office was. On each floor, a central hallway was flanked by three doors on each side to the north of where the flight of stairs emerged from the lower level. To the south, there was a single office on the right, and the next flight of stairs were to the left. Each door on each floor was solid wood with no window. Each had a number that increased consecutively from south to north, with odd numbers to the left and even numbers to the right. On the fourth floor, There was a door to the left side as you faced the street. This was clearly a door to a maintenance stair that would take you to the roof. It, too, was locked. As this realization dawned upon us both, Janine said lightly, Well, I warned you, this is why I don't bring clients for a first visit. It's okay. I'm glad to get a look inside. I've walked around the building, and you really can't get a sense of what the inside is like. Well, not much I can do now. I'll need to get a locksmith down here tomorrow. Sure, no problem. Do you mind if I take another look in Franklin's office? Yeah, sure. I'll come down with you and take another look in the desk. We walked down to the office from the fourth floor. With each step, my curiosity about this wonderful old building grew. Crossing the threshold into the office, I picked up my inspection where I had left it. Just past the photo of the immortal all girl zither band, I came to the next framed image. It was a finely wrought calligraphy of a poem that I had never encountered. The Sacred Savannah by Oswald Etteridge. On the sun-yellowed grass of the plain, whose yearning and crying for rain, I look and behold silent virtue displayed, wisdom in waiting when blessed or dismayed. As she eats her next meal in the grass, The lioness watches me pass, her teeth tinctured red, lying over her prize, power unequaled, her feast conquered lies. And now Helios drives to the end, where eventide colors will blend, the radiant dusk of eternity speaks, violet wonders for any who seeks. I heard the shuffling of paper stop, as Janine said, it's not here. I'm going to step outside and make a few calls. Do you mind if I look around inside here for a bit? Sure, I'll be out front, take your time. Janine left the office and I heard her head down to the ground level and out the front. As I was standing along the front facing wall and looking toward the center of the room, toward the desk where Janine had just been standing, I saw the stacks of papers that now rested on the top. I also noticed, for the first time, something on the opposite wall That was unlike any contraption i had ever encountered it hung midway up the interior wall to the left of the wardrobe it hung close to the wardrobe enough so that upon entry to the room it would be obscured behind its larger neighbor but having moved further into the office i now stood directly opposite from it it is difficult to precisely describe as it was a strange chimera of unrelated objects It was an angled panel of wood that was mounted to the wall like a box of sorts. The top was narrower than the bottom, so that the surface facing the desk sloped away from the center of the room as it went from bottom to top. There was something like a large hand crank mounted onto this panel all the way to the right. It invited your hand to turn it, but I declined this first invitation, as I had no inkling what might happen if I did. There was a horizontal channel that crossed the middle of the panel at the end opposite the hand crank was a bell it was slightly tinged with a patina of neglect but i gently flicked it with my finger and it gave a muted ring i waited breathlessly for a moment half imagining a terror of hearing the scuffle of rodents that might have been awoken by the disturbance but the room continued in mute slumber relieved i ventured a bolder step and grabbed the hand crank, and ever so slightly tested it. It turned surprisingly easily, and I now witnessed its effect. There was a small shuttle that moved along the track as I cranked the handle on the wheel. It would move left or right as I turned the wheel. Having now braved the device, I inspected it more closely. Engraved into the wood beneath the track, there were a series of numbers separated by dots. Five, one, one, two one two dash six two, two 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 dash four there was no other writing on the device and i could cannot connect these numbers to any other part of the apparatus as it only had the bell the track and the crank perhaps they were some sort of serial number or some identifier associated with its manufacture Or perhaps they were some cipher of a code that might relate to the machine's purpose. Stymied in my speculations, I turned the crank a few more times, fascinated by the artful machine and by watching the shuttle move back and forth. With my delight in this little machine now spent, I turned back toward the desk and the trove of words and pictures that Janine had mined from within its drawers. On top of the desk there was a very old typewriter that once was the pinnacle of information technology. Around it were several stacks of yellow documents. I approached the desk and began to glance through them one at a time. I hoped that this might be a library of insights into Mr. Franklin and his building. Any interesting nugget I could unearth about this property would directly translate into increased rents for me in the event I purchased it. My hope was not disappointed. Although many of the documents were long-expired matters of routine commercial interest, there were several that imparted the thirst of ignorance and desire that it be slaked. They fell into two categories. There were the newspaper clippings with seemingly disconnected accounts of happenings from a century before. Then there were letters, from and to Mr. Franklin, that created a gossamer tapestry of connections with parties I would never meet, Most contained prosaic matters of invitations or invoices of various kinds. However, there were a few documented from both the newspaper clippings and the letters that beguiled my imagination. The first such document was on the top of the stack of clippings. I knew immediately that it had not been the property of Mr. Franklin himself, but must have been added to the hoard later, as it contained Mr. Franklin's obituary from the Fort Collins Weekly Express on April 10, 1897. A life remembered. Deceased. Mr. Elias Franklin, 48, passed away on Friday, April third, of natural causes. He is survived by his wife of 25 years, Mrs. Ethel Pickman Franklin, Mr. Franklin is considered one of Fort Collins' founding fathers, having occupied a place on the city council since its inception. Mr. Franklin additionally planned and funded several public works, including the Larimer County Bank and the Fort Collins Opera House, which he personally considered his masterpiece. Mr. Franklin was also a prolific philanthropist who conducted a great deal of his charitable work through the various fraternal orders throughout northern Colorado. Mrs. Franklin has stated that the funeral will not be open to the public. Odd that a noted community member and philanthropist would have a private funeral. I move to the next clipping from the same paper on April 3, 1897. Elias Franklin found dead. City Marshal David L. Courtright of the Fort Collins Police confirmed today that the gentleman found dead in the street last night was indeed Revered city founder and socialite Elias Franklin. Although the departed's body was found face down in the snow, a coroner's report states that Mr. Franklin did not die of exposure, nor do the police suspect foul play. The Franklin family doctor stated in no uncertain terms to a weekly express journalist that the late Mr. Franklin had been in sound physical health. According to the city marshal's press release, Mr. Franklin was found lying several paces from the entrance of the Fort Collins Opera House, which he was known to have frequented increasingly often following the arrival of the Golden Sparrow earlier this year. The only item on the deceased's person at the time of his death was a small piece of paper in his inside breast pocket. A slightly older clipping was from the St. Louis Lantern from March 30. 1897 Golden Sparrow ends run a Lowell and Barraclaw stage company representative announced this morning that the transcontinental tour of the operatic sensation the Golden Sparrow has been cancelled inquiries as to whether ticket purchases for this evening's performance would be reimbursed were not answered the opera began its tour here in St. Louis three weeks ago and boasted sellout performances at each venue where it showed The opera's lead, German prima donna Elsa Fögelein, has not been seen since yesterday's performance, and all questions tendered to the stage company regarding her whereabouts remain unanswered. Rest assured, dear reader, that the Lantern will continue to deliver updates on this story as they unfold." Someone had gathered these articles together and left them in Mr. Franklin's office. I could not deny that I was immensely intrigued and more than a little unsettled as I read these snapshots of life in Fort Collins from before I was born. I knew vaguely of Mr. Franklin's investments in the community, but this was the first I had encountered his passion and connection to the local opera house. Opera was no longer available in this small town, but it seems that it sat at the heart of cultured Fort Collins in the time of Elias Franklin. I had neither love nor interest in opera, and the article about the Golden Sparrow was only noteworthy because of its position in the stack of otherwise mysterious clippings on the desk. As I mentioned earlier, there were a few other documents of particular interest that were among the scattered papers. There was a small calling card that contained only a short aphorism. A man must choose his companions with care. If he is accompanied by those who are awed, he will struggle to be heard, but with the even-tempered, he will find strength. From the wisdom of the great satraps. I knew neither this bit of wisdom, nor of the great satraps. Next, a letter to Elias Franklin from one Ludwig Schroeder. Mr. Franklin, thank you for your kind remarks about my opera, The Golden Sparrow. As you mentioned in your letter to me, I have poured all my heart and craft into it. I am particularly pleased with the grand corral in the second act. It sounds like the engagement in Colorado is proceeding well. I hope that our success there will provide a foundation for engagements across the country for years to come. I regret that I will not be able to come visit you in Fort Collins at this time, but I thank you for your offer of hospitality all the same. I am quite occupied with the high degree of interest in my little opera, and I will not be able to leave St. Louis for many months. Perhaps I will have the pleasure of meeting you in person at a future date. Please send my warmest regards to the cast, and particularly Elsa. She is an extraordinary beauty, and writing for her is a pleasure. She deserves to be better known by the music-loving public. Humbly yours, Ludwig W. Schroeder. The Golden Sparrow again. This opera must have been all the rage in its time, or at least for Mr. Franklin. I resolved to do some homework on this opera and Mr. Franklin when I got back to my home. Janine and I exchanged several emails over the next week, and she kept me apprised of her efforts to explore the property more completely. She had ended up securing the services of a locksmith the morning after our first visit, and was able to get into the rest of the building. Most of the rooms were empty, save for a bit of dust, and in good condition overall. There was a bathroom on each floor that would need updates, but the offices themselves were in good condition. On the third floor, one of the offices still had a few outdated medical devices from the doctor who had practiced there. On the fourth, there was an office filled with eight boxes of handwritten legal notes from one of the legal tenants. There was nothing that was obviously valuable in this abandoned property. However, we both agreed at the end of our first visit together that she would leave the contents and layout of Mr. Franklin's office unmolested until I could return. This request was conditioned upon my demonstration of strong interest in the property, and my influence over her engagement with the property grew in direct proportion to my expressions of intent to be its buyer. I took the opportunity of that time to do further research into Mr. Franklin and his legacy. I also had taken note of The Golden Sparrow and consulted an online dictionary of musical history to learn what I could about it. This light opera had been commissioned by a German immigrant in St. Louis, Missouri, named Ludwig Schroeder. Herr Schroeder was a minor musical luminary among the St. Louis literati, and The Golden Sparrow had promised to be his artistic breakthrough. It was based upon an Italian short story that circulated in the U.S. at the time. Set in Lake Como, Italy, it tells the story of a mischievous cat burglar, Giovanni, who would steal from the wealthy Italians who would vacation there. The titular object, a finely wrought, solid gold statuette of a sparrow, is Giovanni's peculiar obsession and would be the triumph of his career. The story is filled with the typical antics and melodrama found in light opera from this period. In the climax of the tale, our anti-hero meets his match as he finally gains access to the chamber where the statuette sits on display. As he creeps into the room, he catches the secretive daughter of the duke who owns the palazzo in the act of her evening prayers. As she sings a hymn, her beauty and piety turn his heart, and he resolves that the fair-haired maiden will be a much richer trophy than any mere statuette. It was this scene that led the composer to create the most memorable musical passage of the whole work. Titled The Grand Chorale, this music and the stage drama it supported was consistently noted by critics as the high point of the opera. The remainder of the story revolves around Giovanni's increasingly comic efforts to win her attention while avoiding the attention of the local police. There is no record of any additional performances of the work after its debut tour, and the music appears to have been subsequently lost to history. With this brief tour into American musical history behind me, I returned my attention back to the property at 25 Franklin Lane, and more specifically to the enigmatic office on the second floor. I started to have grand visions of being its next occupant as I oversaw my growing real estate empire. I wanted to get back into the office, and do a more complete inventory of its contents, and also to take measurements throughout the building so that I could more accurately model the renovation expenses as well as the potential revenue prospects afforded by the various units in the building. I called Janine, and after a series of voicemails exchanged, she agreed to allow me into the property again. I met her the following morning at her realty office and picked up the newly made keys to the building and Mr. Franklin's office. I had set aside the day for a deeper inspection of the property and headed directly to the building. There was a construction dumpster along the side of the building, and my heart sank at the thought that they would be plowing through the historic treasures in the building without even a fleeting thought as to their irreplaceability. Looking in, my fears were allayed when I saw that it was mostly a pile of old pallets, the boxes of attorney's notes, and miscellaneous scraps of old medical equipment. I did not see anything that I recognized as being from Mr. Franklin's office. It appeared that Janine had kept her side of the deal. The interior had been thoroughly swept clean, and I saw on the ground floor that the doors along the hallway were ajar. I was curious what these rooms looked like given this floor's different layout from the others, as it had been designed to accommodate larger retail tenants. I walked through the empty rooms and made note of features or amenities that might attract a well-heeled small business. I then headed to the second floor. As with the first, the doors along the hallway, except the one to Franklin's office, were ajar. I quickly entered each room, and all were empty and largely undifferentiated from each other. There was a shared restroom at the end of the hall that would need updates but appeared to have avoided decrepitude of leaks or other water-based hazards throughout its long years. This building had good bones and would renovate nicely. Knowing that I would spend the bulk of my time in Franklin's office, going through its contents in detail, I quickly visited the third and fourth floors and confirmed that they were identical in layout and condition to the second. Each of the floors had a large corner office, similar to Franklin's, on the southwest corner that sat above his. Those would become prime units as they had views of Franklin Lane stretching to the south and to the west a view of the foothills. As I stood on the fourth floor looking on the view, I wondered why Franklin would choose the second floor corner office instead of this more magisterial perch on the fourth. Perhaps my dive into his papers would sate my curiosity. Now to the second floor and into the mind of the enigmatic Elias Franklin. Engaging the newly keyed lock on the door, I entered into his office. It was essentially untouched from my last visit, except there had been some effort at light cleaning. The papers still sat upon the desk, but had been neatly piled, and the room had been vacuumed and lightly dusted without undoing the feeling of reverent slumber that emanated through the faint smell of a hundred years of unmolested age. I sat at the desk and thumbed through the newspaper clippings I had read before and worked my way through the other documents. Nothing new. I started into the desk drawers to see what may have been left behind in Janine's earlier efforts to find the seemingly lost envelope of old keys. I first opened the center desk drawer. It was devoid of any papers, but did contain a menagerie of document fasteners and other oddments. Among these were a set of rods of different lengths. They were gathered together in a box and were between one-half and four inches with a perfectly square cross-section. The stained and polished hardwood and the irregularly rounded edges and small scuffs betrayed a history of extensive handling. I took the box out and set it on the desk to look in the back corners of the drawer. It was now empty. Turning to the left, I went through the three drawers from bottom to top. The bottom drawer was empty. The middle drawer had a curious strip of paper of heavier weight than a document, but not quite the heft of cardboard. It had a pattern of small holes spaced across a grid. The paper itself was much longer in one dimension, roughly 10 inches wide, than the other, roughly 3 inches tall it looked like it was some sort of strange mechanical encoding technique. I struggled with a vague sense of familiarity when I suddenly realized why it seemed so. It reminded me of the player piano music roles I had seen on prior occasions in people's homes. If you haven't encountered one before, they are regular pianos that can be directly played. However, they also have a mechanism that takes long strips of paper with a pattern of holes and passes them over a current of air. As a hole in the paper passes over this current of air, it triggers the motion of a corresponding piano key, which will produce the note as if it had been struck by a human player. They were very popular in the days before radio as a means for homes to be filled with music, without requiring an occupant to be the performer. The paper I had just discovered was a much smaller form of the type I had seen in player pianos, and I wondered if it was associated with a different sort of musical instrument. Though I did not know with certainty, I took the object as a reinforcement of Mr. Franklin's connection to musical concerns. I set it on the desk and opened the topmost drawer on the left to find it empty. Turning my attention to the symmetrically placed, stacked drawers on the right side of the desk, I worked from the bottom to top again. The bottom right drawer had a box with odd engravings that when opened revealed an aged, but still elegant velvet-lined interior. Nestled there was a heavy brass plate with a number and yet another curious series of symbols. The number, 18, was all the way to the left. Reading to the right, there was a sequence of little black squares in a line. Some of them were adorned with a vertical line that ran from the top of the square downward past the bottom of the square on the left side some of these vertical lines were connected by thick horizontal beams at the bottom well beneath the squares themselves it looked vaguely like the musical notation that i had encountered during my research on the golden sparrow but it wasn't quite the same it appeared to be highly stylized another curious feature was the calligraphic letter k that was right after the number and before the first note i had never seen a symbol like it before and wasn't sure if it was connected to the number or the dots in the lines that followed it. Having taken the box from the drawer into my lap for examination, I set it upon the surface of the desk and moved on to the middle drawer. It was empty, as was the top drawer. I had by now emptied the desk of all its contents, and they were perched before me on the desk. Amidst the sundry news articles, scraps of paper, and the two boxes with their esoteric contents, I had arrayed before me a portrait of Elias Franklin painted with invisible pigments. Any delve into the unstructured past is inevitably filled with bumbling attempts to draw order from the non-sequential evidence that survived. Sitting before these now cold shavings from a fully lived life, I was taken back to the times as a child when I would go into my grandfather's attic and look through the mementos he and grandmother had preserved in the aroma of mothballs. Old photos, medals from forgotten service organizations, insignia from military service, pewter objects whose original function were unrecognizable to me. I would appear in the house at various points with something or another in hand and would ask them what it was, what it meant. I didn't always understand the answer but they never failed to supply me with one. But now, I sat with the puzzle pieces poured onto the floor without the picture on the box to guide me in their reconstruction. I don't want to overstate the weight of the moment as I did not yet fully understand the depth of the history into which I would be subsequently immersed. For now, these objects were primarily of interest because they told of a historical personality whose building would be a source of future revenue for me. It was time to explore the wardrobe on the wall. I walked around the desk to my left and pulled at the doors. I wasn't sure if they were locked, but now received confirmation. Contrary to my expectations, given its age and visual appearance, the two doors were completely unmoved by my efforts to pull them open, literally and figuratively. This cabinet was locked, and there were no obvious keyholes that might be explored to gain access. There were heavy brass poles on the doors, and the wood of the hole was a very dark-stained hickory. It may as well have been a safe, as it was clearly built to fully secure what it might contain. In an effort to gauge the nature of those same contents, I went around to the right side of the cabinet and gave it a push with my shoulder. It neither moved, nor did it betray any sound from within that might communicate a hint about its contents. A few more creative heaves yielded no improved result, so I relented and turned to the right to the coat stand in the corner. Upon this coat stand were a gentleman's top hat and the heavy top coat that would have been the expected uniform for a man of commerce in Mr. Franklin's lifetime. The coat was constructed of a heavy wool and was more substantial than old photographs of Gilded Age tycoons could hope to convey. This was a garment that was intended to protect its wearer from substantial wind, rain, and chill. I marveled at the construction of the garment and reflected on the relatively flimsy and disposable nature of modern clothing, in contrast. Holding the coat to examine it, I was naturally drawn to contemplate the pockets and their potential contents. As I had unearthed so many oblique snapshots of Mr. Franklin from his desk, I suspected that his coat might contain more. I was not disappointed. The inside breast pocket sheltered a small scrap of paper. As my fingers closed upon it, I recalled the odd note in the newspaper account of his death. The only item on the deceased's person at the time of his death was a small piece of paper in his inside breast pocket. Was this really the coat in which Mr. Franklin lay upon his death in the snow? A macabre wonder overtook me as I held his death shroud. I quickly hung the coat and inspected the paperlet more closely. It had more peculiar, quasi-musical boxes and lines upon it. I returned to the desk to compare it with the brass plate I had found slumbering in the velvet box from the drawer. The nature of the symbols was identical, but the patterns they embodied were clearly different. The scrap of paper had no curious case symbol and no number, just a string of small black squares with various thin and thick lines to separate them. I now determined to review the books in the bookshelf that sat in between the two windows that faced out to the front of the building to the south. These were on the wall opposite to the wardrobe and the bookshelf sat on the floor and had three shelves with a handful of books on them. I figured that a close examination of these books and their subject matter might help me fill in the mental portrait of the mysterious city father in whose history I was now submerged. There was a 15-book series of great works by great minds. It was a collection of philosophical treatises that formed the canon of Western philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, Epictetus, Aurelius, and so on. The books were largely untouched and although I had no doubt that Mr. Franklin had read the works, it was clear that these were not the tomes that he used to navigate them. They were leather-bound and were of that genus of publication that exists to communicate as much about the erudition of their owner as they exist to communicate their contents to a reader. On the next shelf was a series of volumes of music reviews from the 1888 to 1892 music seasons in New York, again putting Mr. Franklin's musical interests at the fore of my mind. On the third shelf was a collection of the Proceedings of the High Cartography Congress of London. Each volume spanned a five-year period, and the collection went from 1811 to 1895. Thinking that perhaps these volumes might contain something more personal for Mr. Franklin, I selected the last volume, 1891 to 1895. Inside, it was dense with transcriptions from the meetings and official business of the society. As I flipped through the pages, I was carried into long-vacated chambers filled with cigar smoke and gentlemanly comforts as I read of names and matters that had long since left their imprint on the course of human events. It made little sense to me, containing, as it did, so many obscure and grand titles and lofty speeches of a procedural nature, There was a strangely musical flow to the language in the book, and I found myself leaning deeper into the discussions of great truths and important provisions and respectful objections. Before I realized what had happened, I snapped back to an awareness of my location, the time as the westering sun filled the room with a glow. As I reoriented myself, I noticed the sound of music outside the building, something classical sounding, I realized the afternoon was ripening into evening, as the arrival of live music was frequently a harbinger of the bustling activity of diners and tavern crawlers descending to feast on the charms of Old Town. I wasn't sure how long I had stood gazing into the grand eloquence of the high cartography Society of London, but the angle of the sun and the sound of music on the street told me that nightfall was approaching, and that my other obligations for the day were now imminent. As I was not yet the rightful owner of the property, I did not feel it proper that I remove any of the objects or books that I had examined. I took out my mobile phone and snapped some photos of the office and took close-up photos of the objects I had found on Mr. Franklin's desk, as well as a photo of the bookshelf so that I could do more research on the volumes it housed. If I had any reservations about the historic value of this building before, They had been utterly erased by my afternoon spent steeping in the mysterious liquor of Elias Franklin's personal effects. I locked the office and walked through the building to ensure that everything was in order before I left. Seeing that it was empty, I went out the main entrance and locked up. I walked out onto a quiet street. Before leaving, I decided to walk around the building one more time to take some additional photos and to test the doors to ensure that they were locked. I appreciated Janine's trust to give me the keys, and I wanted to make sure that the property was fully secured. As I walked around the building, I admired the beauty of its redstone construction, and knew that it had the historical charisma to anchor an extension of Old Town environs. Although it would take a few years for other business to refurbish the stretch of road connecting it to the heart of Old Town, I just knew that the right tenants would make the building a magnet for eventual foot traffic. I was filled with the undented optimism of the entrepreneur, certain that this investment would help me build economic returns from the historical gold I encountered in Mr. Franklin's office. It didn't hurt that his public life was shadowed by a less-known private one that was revealed in this building. As soon as I was the proper owner of the building and its contents, I would begin a more thorough unraveling of the mysteries of Elias Franklin." It was with a spring in my step that I returned to my car and headed home via Janine's office where I dropped off the keys as I had promised. It wasn't until the next morning as I was reviewing the photos on my phone that I realized something that I had failed to notice earlier. As I was leaving the building, I never did encounter the musicians I heard when I was in Mr. Franklin's office. That concludes part two of The Golden Sparrow. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, join me next time for part three of this special series that retells the fictional world of an escape room that centers around music. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Gustav Hoyer, Composer Impresario, or on Twitter. And you can also email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I create this podcast to share my love of music, and your feedback helps me improve it. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.